Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Brad Palumbo. He is a libertarian conservative journalist, policy correspondent at the Foundation for Economic Education and co-founder of Based Politics. Links will be in the description below. Brad, thank you for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. What does it mean to be a libertarian slash conservative? Well, I think the most obvious example is Senator Rand Paul. If you ask me for kind of the analog of my beliefs, not always, I don't always agree with him. He is, you know, from a different generation than me. I'm in my early 20s. I believe he's coming up on 60. Um, but so there's some generational differences, but I would say he pretty closely approximates my ideology. Uh, the branch of kind of a Republican Party that is anti-war, that is strict free market, um, that is socially more libertarian, um, although he's still pro-life, as am I. Um, so I would say that I just kind of view that as there's the word conservative has been come, become kind of meaningless, and I don't really identify with it anymore. But to folks on the left or in the liberal media, basically anybody who disagrees with the left, they label a conservative. And so I try to, but I also, I guess I wouldn't smack the, just the libertarian label on myself because I'm not a complete anarchist. And that's what a lot of people who use that label really are. Uh, and also I'm not a capital L libertarian. I'm not a member of the libertarian party. And I wouldn't want to convey that brand because I, I don't fully align with that either. So it's just kind of a moniker I've come to because people will get a gist but it's hard to put yourself in a box when you're in that space where around conservatives, you feel like the most libertarian and around libertarians, you feel like the most conservative. Tough position to be in. So you are a policy correspondent at the Foundation for Economic Education. The definition I usually go with is Thomas Sowell's definition. Economics is the study of the use of scarce resources that have alternative uses. What are some main economic lessons that you've learned that have brought you to your current worldview? Well, I actually, folks don't know this about me because I only say it once in a blue moon when I'm on a podcast like this, but I actually learned, uh, I studied economics in college. I was an economics major uh, and I, I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst just because I'm from Massachusetts. I didn't have a lot of money um, and, and it was, it's the best public school in the state and it's pretty affordable. And I just happened to go there. I knew I wanted to study economics, but I didn't like pick the program or anything. UMass Amherst just so happens to be the only openly self-avowed Marxist economics department in the continental United States. There's a lot of progressive Keynesian economics departments, but not literal Marxists. And that's what they are there. So I actually sort of got repelled by that and pushed to the other extreme. Then I started reading uh, Milton Friedman. I've got a quote behind him on my office wall here. Nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. And then uh, Thomas Sowell's basic economics is like my Bible. I also keep that on my wall. Um, Always good to have handy. Yeah. So I guess uh, the, the kind of the lessons, the lessons that I learned about economics that brought me to a free market position, I would say um, first and foremost is learning about the history of capitalism, you know, the hockey stick of human history, the fact that poverty mm -hmm. and income and child mortality and all these things were stagnant for thousands of years and then suddenly exponentially started curving upwards a few centuries ago 
just so happens that that timeline is when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations and England and much of the West started to shift away from a feudal system uh, in a monetarist system and instead towards um, of an early form of capitalism, even just looking since 1980 to now, looking at the impact of capitalism. But then in terms of principles, um, I think one is the knowledge problem, right? Hayek, uh, a very famous Austrian economist, explained why like centralized planning and centralized authority always fails. And I just think of it like this, right? Say my cousin uh, wants to, is, gonna, is turning 10 and wants a birthday party. Who would do the best job of planning that birthday party? My cousin's mom, me, my mayor, or Joe Biden, right? Who knows what my cousin likes, what they don't like, if they're terrified of clowns or if they love clowns. I would say the mom would probably do the best job because they know their kid really well. A family member would do the, like, the next best job because they still at least know what that kid would like or hate. Uh, the mayor would not do a good job, but then the president would have no clue where to begin. And that's the problem with centrally managing a society, the way socialism or communism or a big government crony capitalist system so often attempts to do, is that it expects people huddled in offices, bureaucrats and politicians in, an, in an, a Capitol Hill or City Hall or wherever it may be, to plan millions of different details and uh, finite possibilities when really decentralization, I think, is the core of my economic philosophy. And learning the value of decentralization has probably been the thing that pushed me into towards supporting free markets the most. When it comes to something like inflation, finally, people are actually using that word and discussing what is going on. A lot of people say, well, when I go to the store, a lot of uh, the prices are put on by the company. You can see the tag right there. The company chooses the prices. Therefore, a rise in prices is the result of the company just wanting more money and a lot of the companies wanting more money at the same time. What do you say to the mindset that greed, that inflation is the result of greed, therefore the fault of the free market? Yeah, I think it's, I can understand why people who aren't familiar with economics might think that at first glance, but you see that narrative coming from people like Elizabeth Warren, who should know better, uh, and progressive commentators, be, and it's absurd. It has no basis in economics. I mean, just think about it this way. For one thing, why would businesses, we have had inflation over the last two years at much higher levels than any time in recent history. Did companies suddenly get greedier now than they were two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago? Because the companies are greedy in the sense that they're profit seeking. They seek to maximize their profits, but they're nor not any more so today than they ever have been. So why that would explain inflation doesn't make much sense. Now they'll say market concentration and monopoly power, but that hasn't meaningfully changed in, in 30, more than 30 years, market concentration in the United States. It's been pretty stable. So uh, that's not the answer. The flip side, too, is um, inflation in price inflation, that is, in, in all areas, isn't the same. Some things have gotten more expensive than others. Some things have gotten a 5% price increase, while fuel has seen 50 or 70 or whatever it may be. And so why would some companies in some sectors be greedier and more selfish than other companies in other sectors? That doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, you just have to say, why could it possibly be that? 
when the Federal Reserve has printed and created out of thin air trillions of new dollars in the last few years. That sure seems like it would make the dollars in current circulation uh, less valuable when you just create money out of thin air, inject it into the economy. Of course, it's going to devalue a currency. So that's like the Occam's razor. The most obvious thing is probably the thing. Why are we talking about this really uh, far left theory that has no real basis in economics or logic when there's something much more obvious and glaring uh, that we can point to? David Pakman said that one of the unique things about this free market is that it's really profit-seeking. However, I don't know if you've ever seen a politician give a speech or collect a paycheck or do anything. They are just as profit-driven as anyone else. Employees are profit-driven. Consumers are constantly going to stores just so they could get something that they want selfishly. Oh, how terrible. People making mutually beneficial voluntary exchanges. What is it, since it's not profit-seeking, we know that we can throw that away, it's not greed or self-interest that makes this free market different from the government. Would you say that it's decentralization that really is the defining characteristic, or is it something else? Well, I think decentralization is a big part of it, but this is like what we talk about when we talk about public choice economics it's that um, in an economy or in a government rather, you still have actors, politicians, government bureaucrats, they're still governed by self-interest. Uh, it's just not a traditional profit, what people think is dollars and cents. Profit's really about opportunity costs and uh, costs and benefits for what you care about, which isn't always just dollars. So people in government, I mean, think about it. Politicians self-selects for people who are ruthless, unscrupulous, shamelessly ambitious, power seeking. And of course, once they're in office, they're not going to be some like benevolent and just act in society's best interest, even though that's what they say. And that's somehow what people believe. Public choice economics teaches us that we can expect them to be just as selfish as everyone else. But the difference between government and free markets is decentralization, but also competition. So for example, if all I have are public schools and there's no school choice, there's no alternatives in my town, well then that is the only option for kids. And because of public choice, it, it's essentially a monopoly on education in that case. And those people are just as self-interested and self-motivated and they may well do a bad job of providing education. That would be an example of how that goes wrong in a government system. Now in a free market, right? If you have robust school choice in education, I may have five or six schools I could send my kid to in my town and I'll have a voucher program or something else where I can um, pick and choose. Well, if one of them is failing me, I'll go somewhere else. But with a few exceptions, government programs aren't optional. They're not competitive. They're, they're things that it's you do this or we force you to do it. Uh, and if we're doing this, no one else is allowed to. So they, they tend to have a monopoly on most of the things they do. Um, and so that's why it's different from a competitive market, because in a competitive market, if you're failing to serve consumers, you'll go under and somebody else will take your place. If you're not offering the lowest price, somebody will undercut you to steal your consumer, your customers. So that's the biggest difference is, is really competition. I saw this article um, just now. I must have missed it earlier with uh, Eliza Blue. COVID lockdowns led to a huge spike in human trafficking survivor 
warns. First of all, I love her. She is on Twitter, very active. I uh, I always appreciate her uh, her her, act, uh, her activism. Um, do uh, could you summarize your discussion with her and maybe give us some unintended consequences of these uh, very kind, well-meaning fourteen days to s- slow the spread lockdowns? Yeah, so we had Eliza on the Base Politics podcast, which people should check out if they like this show. They'll probably like ours. Uh, it's on most of the major podcast platforms on base politics. And she talked to us about this because human trafficking is uh, her focus as a survivor of that terrible practice and crime. Um, but it, it wasn't just human trafficking. She talks about the data showing big spikes in reports and abuses because everything was locked down. People were disconnected from society. They were poor. They were desperate because of not COVID itself, but because of the government lockdowns. Uh, but it wasn't the only one. Right. There's also um, there was things like skyrocketing drug abuses to record breaking levels and overdose deaths. And that's really tragic. And that's what happens when you isolate people. There's unintended consequences. I don't really think lockdowns were very successful at slowing the spread of covid. Um, But even if they were, you would still have to weigh that against the increase in domestic violence that we saw, the increase in human trafficking, the massive mental health woes that we saw, uh, and all these other unintended consequences. I actually testified before the Senate about this a little over a year ago about all this, just how many businesses were destroyed. I mean, there's, this is really tragic to even think about or talk about, but there were these reports of an international epidemic of child suicide, attempts by children under 12, to take their own lives because their whole life had been shut down and they were devoid of meaning and disconnected and just in despair. And all of this, COVID didn't do that to kids. COVID posed statistically almost zero threat to children, barring, you know, extreme exceptions, like they're at very high risk with some precondition or something. Uh, It wasn't COVID that put them into depression and anxiety at soaring rates. It was the government taking away their school, banning them from seeing their friends, shutting down their extra activities uh, and isolating them. And so the consequences of that we've already seen are drastic, but they'll continue to pile up for, I think, decades to come as the research and as the statistics unfold. And it's not going to age well. That's what I'll tell you. People have already really reshifted the way they think about the lockdowns. Uh, just over two years to now where, like on the right in America, at least, it's the widespread position that they were wrong. We were arguing at feed that they were wrong pretty much from the get-go. Uh, but at first, there was a lot more patience for them and a lot more like, oh, well, we'll see. Imagine 10 years from now, I think the statistics on it, it will be looked back as 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 a great failure near universally, I think. One of the amazing things that... Um big government advocates are so good at is getting you to really identify with a story. So George Bush senior did this when he said that um, the Iraqi army invaded Kuwait and they took babies out of incubators and threw them on the floor to die. Turns out this was a fake story cooked up by Hill and Knowlton. The, uh, the, the left will say, well, look at uh, the kids that die as a result of too much freedom and lack of regulation in the gun sphere. Meanwhile, statistically, like the Russian government killed more kids since we've started talking and the Ukrainians did in the Donbass before that. So it's not really the statistics that people use when they're in their most convincing state of, you know, persuading people. 
when it comes to how we can start competing with them on their level of telling stories and creating a narrative, um, do any uh, stories come to mind when it comes to, say, the COVID lockdowns? We can start small here. Any stories that come to mind that you really think portray our side as having the moral and economic high ground? Yeah, I think that um, people on the liberty side tend to be nerds and they tend to want to come at you with studies and data and facts. And those are very important. But unfortunately, in the world we live in, that's not really how most people change their mind or make decisions. Most people are compelled by emotion, by pathos. And so you need to give them a story or real people that are affected by something. So, for example, in the past, when I've written about school choice, I've used the example of individual students their names, their pictures, who were being bullied and were depressed and suicidal. And then school choice let them go somewhere else and they were happy and thrived and their issues were resolved. With the lockdowns, I would use the stories of specific business owners, like this one guy, I'm forgetting his name because I wrote about it years ago now, but he, he had saved for years to open up a sports bar and then had opened it and then had it destroyed by the lockdowns and he was financially ruined. Um, <laughs> It, so the, I think by leading with the human element of these issues, for example, on gun control, you know, no one denies that school shootings are tragic. They're terrible. They're heartbreaking. Um, but we also can lead with the stories of the estimates are anywhere between 500,000 to 3 million people in the United States per year use guns in self-defense. Now, we could just cite that statistic, but that's not going to convince people very much. We need to lead with the story of a woman who's, who carries a gun because she's a survivor of sexual assault and she has fended off an attack with a weapon or something of that sort. So we have to be able to back up our arguments with facts and statistics and studies, but we have to lead with a human element if we actually want to win these debates, because like it or not, most people decide things on emotion, not statistics. Did you ever see the lockdown video of this poor woman whose business was shut down? It was a restaurant and she's like in tears crying saying, look, they shut me down. Uh, I, I'm not allowed to have any customers, but right across the way here, there's food being served because this is actually an acting set. This is a movie and this is totally different as opposed to a restaurant. Did, did you see that video? I think I remember that video. I saw another one where this woman was tearful, this African-American woman. She was on camera with some local news station, and she was just saying that they shut down the place she gets her prescriptions, the place she gets her food, the place she works. And she's like, our whole community, where do we go? What do we do? And she's sobbing. And that clip was played on, I think, Fox News and all libertarian and conservative media over and over again because it really humanized the element. I could cite you the statistic, I don't have it in front of me, about however many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of small businesses closed but never reopened. But mm -hmm. leaving with that story, with that human element, I think does a lot more to truly sway people and to grab their attention too. And once you have their attention, um, you can then hit them with facts and statistics. I did this a lot when I wrote about the COVID so-called stimulus spending most of which went to partisan projects and big government welfare programs that were rife with fraud and hurt the economy. Uh, one example was the unemployment benefits expansion. They added this huge federal supplement that made um, unemployment benefits pay more than work for a lot of people. Uh, and it was in place for over a year and it was no verification. They just sent the money out the door. And now we know that hundreds of billions of dollars were lost to fraud. But I found one particular example where this rapper named Nuke Bizzle 
uh, he had embezzled or stolen or whatever the proper word would be tens of thousands or if not hundreds of thousands of dollars from these by filing fake claims for the unemployment benefits. Then he got caught because he rapped about it and how easy it was and released a mixtape on SoundCloud or something. Uh, and, and so I used that story like as the headline. And then I brought people in and said, by the way, there's been hundreds of billions of this fraud now, which is, you know, put it in comparison, like five times what the government spends on roads and bridges or whatever it may be. Um, but if you just lead with the numbers, you're not going to get people invested as much as if you can find an anecdote or a story. There was a key and peel skit about a guy who commits a murder and then raps about it. And I thought that was so funny yet ridiculous. So to, to hear that story is just so funny. Uh, one of Walter Williams's favorite one-liners was he would sort of grab people's attention by saying, who owns you? Because before we talk about what the state should do, we have to realize it violates this self-ownership principle. So who owns your body? He'd sort of get into this discussion. I forget if it was on Phil Donahue's show or where I first heard him say it, but he would always sort of have this one-line attention grabber. Are there any one-line attention grabbers that you've used to really grab, whether left or right, big government advocates to sort of grab their attention and really make them rethink their initial uh, position? Hmm. I think it's hard to know off the top of my head, but one that comes to mind is I write a lot about the $15 minimum wage and why it's, in my view, a really bad idea and actually bad for the people that it's supposed to help. And so one thing I'll ask, I'll say to progressives or socialists when I'm debating them or talking to them about this, I'll just say this one line. If a $15 minimum wage is so pro-worker, why is Amazon spending millions of dollars to lobby for it in favor of it in Washington, D.C.? And they're like, what? They're like, let me Google yeah. that. That can't be right. Then they Google it and Amazon's website comes up. Why do we support a $15 minimum wage? <laughs> because they, and the, tr the truthful answer is because they know that they can afford it, but it will bankrupt mom and pop businesses across the country that they want to take over. And so they, they support regulations that are anti-business, but they're actually good for big business because they entrench them and give them more market concentration, and they block small competitors. So that's one thing where even some progressives I know have said, wow, you really made me second guess it a little bit with that one. Yeah, when I worked at Walmart, uh, Doug McMullen, the CEO, came out in favor of the minimum wage. And uh, I remember people being like, wow, that's really cool of him, you know, to really, you know, this rich oh, guy yeah, taking right. the side of the everyday worker, this guy's the real deal. And I said, you know, uh, the previous guy, H. Lee Scott did this uh, as well, the previous CEO. And they said, wow, look at that. Wow. I guess these CEOs really are cool. I, and then I had to show him the meme. It's this really tall guy in a pool and a short guy in the pool, just about to drown, can barely keep his head over water. And the tall guy's like, I think we should increase the amount of water in this pool. Obviously, it's going to drown the other guy and he'll be totally fine. Just like any other regulation that the Bezoses of the world are uh, able to uh, easily uh, cooperate out of. And even if they have to bear the cost, it does better at stopping out the competition than, you know, any regulatory regime would not increase uh, the quality of products as much as uh, as competition would. So th that that is a great uh, wake up call because you say, hold on. 
the bankers wrote the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. That can't be the case. That can't, it can't be J.P. Morgan. It had to have been someone uh, who was part of the workers of the world unite. I, I love, uh, I always love uh, getting into uh, stories like that. When it comes to the uh, gun control issue, I see that it's the lead uh, story here on basedpolitics.com. Link in the description below. You know, it's always difficult to uh, talk about something like this, even after governments have killed how many hundreds of millions of people in the last century alone. It just is so terrible to see the face of these kids. Uh, how do you talk to someone uh, about gun control and keep the uh, discussion humane and logical? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is not do what a lot of people on the left or in favor of gun control are doing right now, where they go and say, if you don't agree with us, you have blood on your hands. You don't care about dead children. All these kind of super emotionally charged ad hominem attacks, that's going to shut down any chance of productive conversation immediately. Now, when I'm talking to somebody, I'll often just ask them questions. So what specific gun control proposal is it that you're saying would have stopped this shooter? And they'll go, well, we need universal background checks in this country. It's crazy we don't have that. They were allowing killer. And I'll say, well, did you know that we've already got about 90% background check rate and you're already required to do a background check at any time you buy a gun at a federally licensed dealer? They'll go, oh, I didn't know that. And I'll go... And did you know that this shooter in Texas, and I won't say his name, we can get into that, um, he bought his guns legally and he had no criminal record. So um, I don't see what a background check would have done. Do you know that other shooters have just gotten someone to purchase a gun for them or taken a family member's gun? Um, so I don't really see the background check thing solving this. So what do you have next? And they'll go, oh, well, we need to raise an age, the age to buy a gun to 21. So these disturbed teenagers can't get their hands on the gun, on a gun. And you'll go, okay, um, one, that's not probably constitutional and it would get struck down. So not much of a solution there. But also, do you know people under 21, do they have a hard time getting their hands on alcohol if they're really determined? No, they, they really don't. And somebody who's so unhinged and disturbed that they want to kill elementary children, honestly, one of the most horrific things you can even think of, they're not going to be deterred by an age limit when people can circumvent it because they want to drink beer, right, so easily. Um, and in the same way, they'll say, okay, well, we need red flag laws. And I actually think the thing I will get, I don't, there's lots of reasons why I don't support red flag laws, but I at least will give gun control proponents that at least this one makes sense why they think it could stop these shootings. Whereas the other two, it clearly doesn't make sense why they would. But then I'll say, well, did you know that in the Buffalo shooting, just like I think a week or so ago, um, they have a, new, a red flag law and it was never used and no one reported the guy and didn't, didn't stop anything. <laughs> you know that in almost all of these shootings, there are countless warning signs, disturbing posts, law enforcement gets told time and time again, and they keep failing to do anything. So I don't see how this is going to change anything. And you know that you can already get somebody committed in the legal system through a very similar process where you have to go to court uh, and that would involve their guns being taken away. And so a lot of these things are empty solutions. And the reason that the uh, gun control proponents and Democrats talk about these is because 
their real agenda is they want us to, to not have be a society with gun rights, right? They want us to do in Australia and to just confiscate everybody's guns and try to start over. And it's unrealistic for a million reasons, but it's so politically untenable, even among Democrats, that they instead talk about these piecemeal, small reforms that wouldn't do anything to stop these tragedies, like the three we've just run through. And then it's like, well, hang on, you're using the aftermath of these tragedies to try to cash in on those the emotion to push unrelated policy items that are part of your party's political agenda that wouldn't do anything to reduce these shootings. That, to me, is deeply cynical, deeply wrong. But I do think we have to take a position of asking questions, of being respectful, of just pointing things out, of listening to people, um, because going into full combat mode or trying to fight back, I don't think is going to win hearts and minds right now when everyone's so emotional and kind of collectively traumatized by something like this Texas elementary school shooting. Yeah, um, you're totally right to not say the name, by the way. I mean, I have at my work, there's Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. I keep begging them to change this nonsense, but it's on there. And it's only CNN that is talking nonstop about the same thing as though you have all of the kids who do good things in the world and they don't get any TV time. But if you commit the worst atrocity ever, you'll get wall to wall coverage from the biggest names in media. Wow. And a lot of people would rather have bad publicity than no publicity. It's a lot worse, you know, rather feel pain than nothing at all. That kind of thing. They, there is no way that they are not incentivizing these things. No, they are. Uh, Objectively speaking, they are. I've written about yeah. this. I've studied this. Um, psychologists have done a bunch of research on the mass shooting phenomenon and the type of people who become mass shooters. And they consistently find that it is narcissistic, egomaniacal, deeply depressed people who, want, who crave infamy. And it creates copycats when they go through and they do all this coverage of the, the killer of the disturbed early life of so-and-so or what friends said about this person before this shooting, all this coverage, their face that plastered into history through these headlines and front pages and all of this. And actually some researchers um, did this big comprehensive study uh, that was promoted by the American Psychological Association a few years ago. And they found that they believe up to one third, you could reduce mass shootings by up to 33% if you blacked out the names and photos of shooters from coverage and instead focused on victims. Because there's such a strong psychological effect at play here that if you took that away, a decent number of these people wouldn't go out and do it because the reason they're doing it is to go out in infamy. So you couldn't solve the whole problem, but it would be a real solution that could really help but you can't do but it doesn't suit a political or partisan agenda. They just so they just want to scream about gun control instead. Dennis Prager's point on this was that if you look at all of these uh, murderers, the reason I don't say shooter is because it just fits right into their narrative. They can pin it on the gun. They never blame, you know, the tanks or the nukes or the bombs for any government war crimes that happen. Uh, so any of these large-scale murders. Prager says, I wonder how many of these kids were like really into Catholicism or Judaism or their parents really raised them Christian to teach them the value of life. This is not to take away any responsibility. Of course, tons of atheists, most are not mass murderers as well. 
do you see that, you know, even as an atheist myself, that maybe the atheist community has overlooked the importance of religion when it comes to uh, valuing human life and human beings having a general point of agreement in society where they could have like a reference point as a thou shall not kill. Do you think maybe we overlook the importance of religion as uh, libertarians? I don't know if I would agree that it's the religion. I think what he's hit on there and is probably more at play is the family. How many of these mass shooters don't have fathers in their home growing up? And the answer, I don't have it right in front of me, but is the vast, vast majority there's so many broken homes and broken families and abandoned, neglected kids. And that's part of where this comes from is not to take an ounce of responsibility away from these individuals because it's all on their shoulders. But the context and the background is usually abuse and trauma or abandonment and broken families. And I'm not saying I don't believe that that, that happens in Christian and Catholic families, too, a lot. I'll tell you. So I think for me, it's more about the society and the family than it is the faith or not the faith. I'm all about people believing in whatever they want to believe. But you can also believe in the value of human life without a Christian basis for that. So I think it's more about family structure and intact families than I do think it's specifically about religion. Did you ever read James Harrigan and Anthony Davies uh, book, Cooperation and Coercion? I've read a bunch of their articles. I haven't read the book. Uh, so in the book, they they have a great section on guns where they say, yes, um, Australia, uh, homicides in Australia have fallen um, after they passed the, uh, you know, Gun Confiscation Act of 96. What they uh, what the uh, gun control advocates don't tell you is that homicides were decreasing at a faster rate before the 96 prohibition and decreased at the same time in America at a faster rate when they didn't have the gun confiscation. So uh, I just wanted to bring that up because Australia is the one they always, always, always go to and they're totally wrong about it. It's not an actual comparison for the people who love uh, science so much. When it comes to being pro-life, what does it mean to be pro-life? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. And honestly, it's not one of my main issues. It's not something I'm super invested in or talk or write a lot about. I think that the difference is for people who are in the libertarian tent, we generally agree in the idea of the non-aggression principle or that my rights are robust as an individual, but that they don't extend to the point where I'm violating someone else's rights. Like, right, my right to swing out my hand ends at your face. And so the real question is, for libertarians on abortion is actually pretty much the same question as for everybody else. It's do you believe an unborn baby is a human with its own set of rights? Or do you believe it's just a fetus, just kind of a clump of cells, an artifact of biology, but it's not a human yet and it doesn't have rights? And I can see how people believe either position. I have become much more swayed and convinced that it is the former, that it is a living independent being with rights. And at that point, um, a mother's right to control her own body, to bodily autonomy, that's something I totally believe in, right? Um, I'm all about using birth control, doing whatever you want, choosing to abstain or having sex if you want. It should absolutely be your body, your choice. The problem is that in abortion, if you believe it's a child, then it's no longer your body. So it really should no longer be your choice. And so I think that's how you get to the pro-life framework from a libertarian leaning point of view. 
Yeah, uh, I have uh, come to the same uh, conclusion as you. It was I uh, was working at a restaurant, and I had seen this. Uh, you know, pregnant woman uh, should not be consuming alcohol. It can lead to and then fifty fetal development issues. That was sick. And um, this guy had sort of passively mentioned to me, "Well, her body, her choice, right? Uh, I, I think all women should get drunk uh, when they're pregnant." In, in this obviously joking way, he's trying to, you know, get get me to the pro life side. And I go, "Isn't that interesting? That on on that same principle, if it's your body, well, then it's just like me drinking alcohol at any point in." Uh, well, in the other life. thing that's a good point, but the other thing too is in many states in America, if you kill a pregnant woman you're charged with two counts of homicide yeah and i i think that's correct but it seems fundamentally uh inconsistent to say that a six-month pregnant woman uh if she is murdered which god that's terrible that, that but that that is two murders but if she goes and gets an abortion at planned parenthood that is zero murders that doesn't make any sense because the value of human life doesn't depend on whether their mother wants to have a child or not. It just, to me, the whole thing is very inconsistent and it doesn't make sense. I think it's a very messy issue. And I, you know, I'm a man, I will, I'm also a gay man. So I particularly will never be, you know, causing or having an unwanted pregnancy, but I can imagine that that would be a terrible situation to be in, you know, to be someone who is pregnant and not ready to have a baby doesn't have the resources doesn't have the support like i have a lot of compassion for that situation so i don't view it as black or white you're all just baby evil baby killers but i fundamentally think if you believe in the rights of the unborn baby then the only consistent approach is to believe that the what the mother's right to choose and her bodily autonomy while a very legitimate right only extends to pre-pregnancy control over their own body not the the decision to allow another body to live or die. Yeah, and uh, I think it's uh, still important to uh, take a position on this. Uh, I am not a citizen of Yemen, but being against the Yemen war is something you can still exercise. I'm not Ukrainian. I'm not an elementary school student, but we're still able to determine those. Yeah, I agree. And also, the, the my, argument doesn't, uh, my argument's not more or less legitimate if I'm a man or a woman. Right. Like they would say men don't get to have an opinion about abortion. And it's like, OK, well, I just presented an argument and it would be the same argument whether my friend Hannah said it. Right. So engage with the merits of it because it doesn't become more or less correct or false or strong or weak based on the chromosomes of the person whose lips utter it. Right. So I really find that piece of the abortion debate very frustrating because it's so identity politics. And of course, Roe v. Wade was written by nine male justices, or I guess seven male justices, but all men on the Supreme Court at the time. Uh, and they, they don't seem to think that those men had no right to an opinion. Of course. And then they're not like, businesses should be regulated. Actually, you know what? I'm not a business owner, so I shouldn't comment on this. Never mind. You, <laughs> you, you guys do your own thing. Of, of course. Never uh, never the same yeah, principles for, uh, for, for themselves. When it comes to your favorite books on freedom, economics, the philosophy. What are some of your go-tos? Obviously, you and I share basic economics, the Thomas Sowell book, which I love. Do you have the most recent uh, edition on international inequality? I think it I is. Do. Awesome. I, I I love that book so much. I just gave away my first copy so I could get the new edition. What are some other books that uh, you really uh, attribute your uh, intellectual uh, journey to? Well, I would say Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, 
uh, and Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom are both good uh, introductory texts to free market economics and individual liberty, the philosophy. They're also like very, they're pretty short and they're pretty accessible. Uh, so I think that's a good idea for people who are interested in it because if you hand somebody basic economics by Thomas Sowell, it is like a 600 page tome, right? So I would, it, maybe not the best place to jump in. Friedman's books are a little more accessible. Uh, other ones include um, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. I think he really writes in a very accessible way, but he kind of explains the fundamental concepts of why central planning doesn't work and applies them to most public policy issues. And that one's very accessible to the average reader, and it's also pretty short. So I would say that one, um, and I guess there's a lot, but those those are kind of some of my go-to recommendations for people. So let's take Hazlitt's lesson that he sort of gives you in the introduction, where he says, the good economist looks not only at the immediate causes on one group, but the long-term consequences on all groups. Knowing that, what are the implications of something like that when it comes to Let's take either the baby formula or the minimum wage, take any topic and walk us through how Hazlitt would approach that. Yeah. So um, I guess minimum wage is an easy one to apply that framework where if you just look at the minimum wage um, increase, say $15 minimum wage increase, um, and you just look at the immediate obvious direct effect, you would say, well, some workers will see paycheck increases. They'll earn more money. They'll have a higher wage. And you say, that sounds good. Now, if you see, if you try to see the secondary and indirect and unintended consequences of that, you'll realize prices will go up. There's a really famous study actually showing that at McDonald's, essentially almost 100% of the increased minimum wage costs are passed on through increased menu costs to low income consumers. And so actually the good is being directly negated in that situation. You also would think of the workers who will be let go, the workers who will have their hours reduced and actually earn less uh, total wages, even though they'll earn a higher hourly rate. That has happened at Target, actually. That's been documented. Um, and you'll also have to think of the small businesses that close because they can't afford the, or they operate on very tight margins and they're put out of business. You'll have to think about the people who will never be hired in the first place, the teenagers yes. starting out. For example, I use myself as an example. My first job was at a Subway making sandwiches uh, when I was like 17, and I was not very good at it. Uh, <laughs> and I definitely was not producing $15 an hour in value for the Subway owner. If anything, he was like training me and giving me a lot of skills for a while before I could even probably earn the $8 that I was getting paid. Um, and so if that was the law, it, I don't think I ever would have gotten hired. So for him to hire me would have been charity, not business. Um, and then, but of course that job helped me get my next job, which helped me get my next job, which helped me get my next job and though helped me get my job I have now. So I think just looking at the minimum wage, you can see the, the Hazlitt's fundamental lesson about, about not just focusing on the direct consequences, but thinking of the unintended consequences, which requires humility, because mm. you'll never know all the unintended consequences. We're not omnipotent. We don't have infinite knowledge and wisdom. But like he points out, Hazlitt, 
if you think that you can plan things and you only focus on the direct, that arrogance can lead to disastrous results. So w- one final question. Thank you so much for being generous with uh, your time, by the way. If uh, I'm scrolling through uh, this article and uh, I just love the, the imagery you, uh, you guys have uh, talking about a bill that Rand Paul has introduced to uh, hopefully end the uh, baby formula shortage. You have supermarkets in Geneva filled with formula, France totally filled with formula, uh, four or five images from France, Sweden even has shelves stocked. So uh, why is it that we are experiencing a shortage on this side of the Atlantic when it's all right there? Why can't we just buy it and make this exchange? We have planes, we have boats. What's going on here? Well, there's a few factors behind the shortage, but the biggest one is simply that the U.S. federal government makes importing baby formula, even from advanced European nations, essentially completely illegal. It's a trade protectionist measure. Uh, It's illegal to import from tons of countries. The ones where it's not illegal, there's huge tariffs and quotas and barriers, and all that's done to protect domestic manufacturers. But what it actually does is make us a very reliant on just two or three big companies that produce all the baby formula in the U.S., or most of it at least. So when one of them, Abbott, had a contamination issue that may have not even actually been a contamination issue, but we don't have to get into the details of that, um, and went uh, offline on on one of its biggest plants, all of a sudden our, our store shelves are bare and parents can't feed their infants. And it's like, meanwhile, the U.S. government is literally confiscating at the border imported formula. And that's what Rand's bill would do. It would just eliminate those restrictions and tariffs um, permanently, actually, unlike some of the bills that are proposed that do so temporarily and just allow us to participate in the international market. Because right now it's not even close to a free market. Unbelievable stuff. Thank you for reporting on this. Yeah, th- their uh, regulations are the very things that cause the oligopolies, which they claim to be uh, in such opposition to. The website is basedpolitics.com. Link in the description below. Brad, thank you so much for your time, sir. Thanks for having me.